Well, good morning. It is uh, so good to be with you. Um, I have to tell you a funny story. Uh, where's Brian? Brian, where are you? Oh, there. Brian's in the back. The, the last time I, w I came here, or was supposed to come here, I got caught in a, actually in a hurricane, I think. But my flight midway, uh, when you fly on Delta Airlines, everything goes through Atlanta, especially if you're on the East Coast. And so uh, my flight was canceled uh, in, in a, the middle of Florida, and I ended up not being able to get here. And then yesterday morning, I was on my way to the airport, Brian, this is especially for you, and I ran over something and got a flat tire. And I'm thinking, this is really weird. But um, thankfully, I was able to get back to my house. I wasn't that far away, and my wife drove me to the airport. And so I'm here, I'm thankful to be here, and, uh, uh, <laughs> and thankful for the church's uh, support for many years. It's, it's a blessing uh, to myself and to my wife. Um, why don't we begin with a word of prayer, and uh, we're going to be looking, uh, you can see the title of the message, Christmas Through Jewish Eyes, but particularly, I want you to think of, if, if you were answering the question, what's the greatest day in Jewish history, what would that be? And I'll, I'll explain what that's about. So let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for who you are. We thank you, Lord, uh, for your great love for us. And pray, Lord, uh, that your spirit would open our eyes and our hearts to your word this morning. May we be doers of your word and not hearers only. May we take this word and apply it to our hearts and to our lives. And we will give you all the honor and glory for who you are, for what you've done, and even for what you promised still to do pray this and give thanks for Shem Yeshua, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As Pastor Matt said, uh, I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus, and uh, I've been a believer for a long time. Uh, but I've always had this heart for Jewish people to come to know their Messiah. And so I got my hands on a, a survey that was done uh, by a Jewish organization and the, the survey asked this question, what is the greatest day in Jewish history? And some of the answers were really interesting. Uh, that actually was number one, the invention of the bagel. Can you imagine Jewish people saying, what's the greatest day in Jewish history? It's the day that someone figured out how to make a bagel and then to put locks in onions on it makes it even better. Uh, another food that was mentioned was the invention of the matzo ball. And for those of you who've, who've had matzo ball soup, take a look at the, the chicken fat floating on the top. Doesn't that look appetizing? Uh, now, as they started thinking in terms to getting a little more serious, uh, they talked about the rebirth of the nation of Israel. And uh, certainly that was an important day in Jewish history. Then they started naming people, you know, like David Ben-Gurion, Golda Meir, Albert Einstein, and some actually said this. That Spielberg's birth was very important in Jewish history. The interesting thing was nobody said Christmas. Not one person surveyed said Christmas was the important, most important day in Jewish history. Now, if the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, talk about 
the Messiah coming, then I believe the greatest day in Jewish history would have to be the birth of the Messiah. And whether it's December 25th or, other way, or otherwise, the fact that we celebrate his birth makes it, uh, to me, the most important day in Jewish history when we acknowledge that he is indeed the Messiah. So what does the Old Testament say about the Messiah? And the question that a lot of people think is, did Jesus just show up in the book of Matthew? Or was he always there? So what I'd like to do is look at that, what I would call the greatest day in Jewish history, uh, and look at Christmas through Jewish eyes, so to speak. So the first thing that I want you to look at is the Old Testament tells us how the Messiah would come. And to follow that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. And this is probably the Christmas card you're going to get more than any other. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. And we read this, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness for then, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so, as you look at this, Isaiah 9, 6 is a clear prediction of the incarnation, that God was going to come to earth by being born. And the question is then, how do you figure out that this is talking about God? And if you look at the names that this child is going to be called, they are all names of God, beginning with the, the term Wonderful Counselor. Now, unfortunately, we're limited in our, in our language. And what I mean by that is uh, I stayed at the Hilton Hotel uh, by the airport and ordered a hamburger in my room, and the hamburger was wonderful. It really was. And so we see the word wonderful, and it sort of says to us it was really good. Very nice, whatever, however you want to do that. And that's not really how the Hebrew word really should read. Uh, the, the Hebrew word there is pele, and it literally means incomprehensible. And, and the best example I could give you that from the scriptures is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's the story of the birth of Samson, when Samson's parents, who were unable to have children, pray to God to be able to have a child and the angel of the Lord appears to Samson's mother, tells her that she's going to have a son, that he's going to be a Nazarite, taking that Nazarite vow, and tells, tells her what she should and shouldn't have while she's having, going through the pregnancy and what the child should do. And then she tells her husband he doesn't believe her, and the angel of the Lord shows up again, and the husband eventually, uh, she says that he came again, the husband still doesn't believe her, but the angel of the Lord shows up, and now the husband's talking to the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord, who by the way, most Bible scholars believe is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, the angel of the Lord says, I've already told her what she's supposed to do, 
And he, he's starting to recognize, Samson's father is starting to recognize that this is more than a mere, mere man, and says, I want you to bless us, and can you tell me your name? And the response of the angel of the Lord is really interesting. Why do you ask me my name, seeing that it's wonderful? Same Hebrew word. And so what that's telling us is that word means incomprehensible, beyond your ability to figure out. And so that word here in Isaiah 9-6 is talking about that this counselor will have, be endued with divine wisdom. And so first word, wonderful counselor. Second word, El Gibor, mighty God. Clearly, that's speaking about God. Third word, Aviad, eternal father. And the fourth name, Sar Shalom, the prince of peace. All these names are describing attributes of God. So clearly, this child who's going to be born uh, is going to be God. So then if God is going to be born, that means a woman is going to get pregnant and God is going to be the father. How's God going to do that? Well, how many of you are familiar with Greek mythology? Well, in Greek mythology, it was very common for the gods to take on human form and have relations with human women, and then they would have offspring. That's where, how Hercules was born. He was the son of Zeus. And so as you see that, uh, that seems to be what would be logical. In fact, the early Mormon church, people like Brigham Young believed that Mary and God the Father had a sexual relationship and Jesus was the product of that. That Jesus is indeed the Son of God, but not God, he's the Son of God. And that's what the Mormons tend to believe. Well, Mary asked that same question, how can this be, being that I'm a virgin? And the response of, of the angel Gabriel is the Holy Spirit, this is Luke 1.35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So what the angel is telling Mary is this is going to be a miraculous birth. So if you turn from Isaiah 9, 6, one page over to Isaiah 7, Isaiah 7 actually describes the miraculous birth. Isaiah 7, 14 should be a familiar verse to you. We read, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And that word for sign is the Hebrew word ot and means a miraculous sign. Something that is going to be not natural, supernatural. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. Have to share a story. I was handing out tracts in New York City, Bible tracts, a few years back, and I was on, I believe, Broadway near 42nd Street. And if you're familiar with that area, it's very crowded. We're talking pre-COVID, obviously. And so, as I'm handing out tracts, this older man who, to me, was obviously Jewish, and I could say that and, and get away with it. You can't, but he was obviously Jewish. And he looked at me, and he said, you should be ashamed of yourself. And I said, I'm not ashamed. He said, well, your mother's ashamed of you. I said, no, she's not. My mother believes the same way I do. So he didn't like that. And he said to me, he said, did you go to college? 
And I said, I did. He says, did you graduate? I said, I did. He says, did you go beyond college? I said, well, actually, I have two master's degrees and one doctorate. And he, he made this whistling sound. He says, wow, a smart guy. I said, well, I don't know how smart I am. I have a lot of letters after my name. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm smart. It means I've been to school a long time. He says, well, okay, smart guy, I have a question for you. How could someone who's so smart be so stupid? So this conversation was getting interesting. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you believe that a woman who's never had a sexual relationship with a man can have a baby. I said, you're talking about the virgin birth. I said, yeah, I believe that. It's a doctrine of my faith. He said, that's ridiculous. That's absolutely impossible. I said, well, I believe that God could do anything. He says, well, I don't. I said, well, let me ask you this question, which is a very Jewish thing to do. Do you believe that a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman could have sexual relationship and, and they could have a baby? And he smiled. He says, you're talking about the birth of Isaac. I said, sure. I said, aren't you Jewish? I had to do that. He said, I am. I said, do you believe in the biblical account of the birth of the patriarch Isaac? He said, absolutely not. It's impossible. No 90-year-old woman could give birth to a baby. I said, and you, you claim to be Jewish. He said, I am. I said, well, if you're Jewish, then tell me, do you believe in the account of the Passover, the plagues upon Egypt, the escape uh, with the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea? Do you believe all of that? He said, no. It's all a bunch of fairy tales. And so the truth is one of the biggest problems that we have to face very often when we share the scriptures is the supernatural aspect of our God. And thank God I believe that God is able to do anything. And, and the fact that you have a six-foot-four Jewish guy preaching to you is proof of that. So, there's a question here, because there's some controversy in 7.14. The controversy is this. The, the word there in the Hebrew for virgin is the Hebrew word alma, which actually should more literally be translated young maiden. But remember what I said before about a miraculous sign. If a young girl gives birth to a baby, is that a sign? It's something very natural. But if a virgin gives birth to a baby, that would be a sign. And so that's the, the question because it's actually a Hebrew word for virgin in the Bible. And that Hebrew word is the word betula, which is often used in the Bible. But there's always a modifier with that word. And the best place to show that to you is in Genesis chapter 24, verse 16. Just turn there real quickly. Genesis 24, 16. This is the story of, of Rebekah. If you remember, Rebekah was going to be the bride of Isaac. In verse 16, when Abraham sends his servant to get a bride for Isaac, uh, we read this, the girl was very beautiful, a virgin, or Betula, there's a modifier with it. And no man had relations with her. So every time the word Betula is used, it's, there's a modifying word, uh, phrase next to it to kind of share what that is. It's, a, it's what I would call a clinical word. So if you go to, say, a, a funeral home to pay your respects, and there's the body in the front of the funeral home, you wouldn't say to the family of the deceased, that is a very handsome looking corpse. That's certainly correct in the terminology, but you wouldn't use it in that way. And so 
kind of how Betula is. Uh, and so, and whenever Alma was used, it was used under the context that it was always talking about a young woman who was unmarried and never had a relationship with a man. Now, the second century BC, the common language in the world was Greek, and it was thought very important to translate the, the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, into Greek, and they got the 70, 70 greatest rabbinic scholars in the world at the time to meet in Egypt, Alexandria, Egypt, to translate the Bible into Greek called the Septuagint, means 70. And the Septuagint, when they came to this phrase, didn't want to have any question that it meant virgin, and they translate with the Greek word Parthenon, which means virgin. So clearly, this is talking about the fact that the way the Messiah would come, the Messiah would come to be born, but be born a miraculous birth. So that's number one. Number two, where would the Messiah be born? Where would the Messiah come? For that, turn in your Bibles to Micah, chapter 5. Again, if you get a lot of cards, most of these scriptures are going to be on the Christmas cards that you get. So now, as you look forward to them, you'll know what they're talking about. Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah. Now, Bethlehem Ephratah is a particular Bethlehem in the area of Judah. Now, there actually was a second Bethlehem up north in the tribe of Zebulon. So this kind of clarifies which Bethlehem it's talking about. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when, the, when she who is in labor has born a, a child, and the remainder of his brethren will, will turn to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And then the beginning of verse 5, this one will be our peace. The Old Testament predicted that the place the Messiah would come to, would be born in, was Bethlehem in Judah. And so the question is, how do you know that? How do you know this is talking about the Messiah? Well, think about a ruler who the Bible says has always, been in, has always been in existence in days of eternity. No human king from David and Solomon onward could fulfill this prophecy. The ruler would be a shepherd to Israel. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, Yahweh. The ruler would shepherd Israel in the of the name of of the Lord his God, the Hebrew Yahweh Elohav. And clearly, that the idea of names really has to do more with attributes. Uh, in that culture, uh, your name really signified what you were going to be and what you were going to do. He would be, the ruler would be great to all the ends of the earth, and his purpose for coming was to bring peace, which we know was the purpose peace between man and God. So, who is understood to be talking about? Well, if you turn to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, as uh, the Magi come on the scene, 
We read this. This is chapter 2, verse 1 of Matthew. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, they're saying that in Herod's court. For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, because he was troubled. That's why they were troubled. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So now he gathers all the religious experts. Where is the Messiah going to be born? They quoting from Micah in Bethlehem and Judah, for this is what has been written by the prophet. So clearly it was understood that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Now, I have to tell you, there are people who believe that early Christians orchestrated some of this. And that maybe if the prophecies were known uh, and they wanted to make you think that he was the Messiah, then they would orchestrate the fact that he would be born then in, uh, in Bethlehem. So turn to Luke chapter 2. This definitely is a Jewish Christmas today. So Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and family of David. So... If this was orchestrated, then we have to believe that part of this conspiracy was Caesar Augustus. Because he was the one that declared the census, and that's why Joseph left Nazareth and ended up in Bethlehem. So, what we know, this is the way God planned it. So we know how the Messiah would come, we know where the Messiah would come, now the question is when. And I would love one day to share with you a, a long study on the, on the book of Daniel, especially chapter 9. I'm sure, Matt, you've done that as well. But in Daniel chapter 9, there's something called the 70 weeks of Daniel. Now, unfortunately, we're in our minds to make it seven days, but it's really the 77s of Daniel, and ultimately it's talking about years so 70 times 7 is 490, 490 years, this prophecy. And there have been uh, some scholars to actually give you the exact day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. I had a former professor of mine at Dallas Seminary named Harold Honer, who wrote a book called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, where he actually believes that he can determine the exact day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. But let's look at Daniel chapter 9, just two verses. We're not going to spend a lot of time with it. Daniel 9, verses 25 and 26. So you are to know, and actually this is the angel Gabriel speaking to Daniel. So you, Daniel, are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, and, and that word really means ruler. So when Jesus enters Jerusalem on what we commonly call Palm Sunday, what's he declaring himself to be? He's declaring himself to be the ruler, the King Messiah. 
Until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So this is speaking about 69 periods of seven years, 483 years. Well, and we'll, we'll touch on that in a minute. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, after this time period, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. So this word there for cut off is also used in other places to be, to be executed or murdered. So the Messiah is going to enter Jerusalem, and then after that, the Messiah is going to be murdered or executed. And the people of the prince who is to come, and, and I believe this is speaking about the political figure that we call the, the Antichrist, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. We have a time reference. That took place in the year 70 A.D. Okay, everybody? In 70 A.D., the, the city of Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. The emperor Vespasian had his son, whose name was Titus, go into Jerusalem to quell an uprising, and in the process, the temple, the second temple that Herod expanded, destroyed. The city was basically leveled. Thousands of people were killed in 70 AD. So what we know from that, without going into detail on the exact moment, we know that the coming of the Messiah happened prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That's pretty clear from Daniel, so we know when. So we've seen how the Messiah would come, we've seen where the Messiah would come, and we've seen when the Messiah would come. So the Messiah would be born, born miraculously of a virgin, born in Bethlehem of Judah, and born before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And so lastly, we need to look at what I think is the most important one, and that is, why would the Messiah come? And for that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the prophet Isaiah again. And this time we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. I'm just going to look at the first six verses. But a couple of things that I just want to make note of. Uh, if you've ever gone into a traditional synagogue, you'll know that they have readings from the different parts of the Old Testament. From the Torah, the first five books of Moses, from the prophets, and from the writings, the Psalms, Proverbs, and all of that. And so they read through the Old Testament throughout the course of the year, probably about 90%. But there are some scriptures that are skipped over. And during the summer months before the Jewish New Year, called Rosh Hashanah, they have these messages from the second part of the book of Isaiah, beginning in Isaiah 40, and they call them messages of consolation. Now, when they read through these messages of consolation, when they get to Isaiah 52, they stop at the beginning of what would be the start of Isaiah 53 and skip all of that till Isaiah 54. So what I'm telling you is what I'm about to read to you, Jewish people will never hear in the synagogue. It's skipped. And I, I've had discussions with rabbis about this, and they say, well, it's not a message of consolation. It's about a message of suffering. And so 
That's the reason they say it was skipped, but I think you and I both know the real reason. Now, it's not the only one that's skipped, and that's not what I'm saying, but it's one of those that are skipped, and you would think this would be an important enough prophecy to be read. So this is Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So this is the remnant of believers among the Jewish people lamenting the fact that so few are believing the message or the report of the Messiah. The statistic today is about 3% of the total population of the Jewish people are professing believers in Jesus. And that number has gone up. But we're still talking about 97% of the Jewish people do not, do not believe that Jesus is their Messiah. And probably the majority of them believe that he's the reason for all of their problems as a people group. All of the persecution is a result of what I would call Christian payback for the Jews killing Christ. That's a typical Jewish understanding of Jesus. So believers are lamenting that so few believe. Then we read, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. Uh, Isaiah 11 talks about this rod, a root from the stem of Jesse, uh, talking prophetically where he would come from. And it also talks about the fact that when Jesus came on the scene in Israel, they were spiritually parched. The last Old Testament prophet was Malachi, and that was about four centuries before. So by the time Jesus came on the scene, we're talking about at least 400 years where no prophet stood up and said, thus saith the Lord. So they hadn't heard. And spiritually, they were like a dry wasteland. Then we have what I would say is the clearest description of what Jesus looked like. Something that we're all wondering sometimes. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So think about that. All of the depictions of Jesus make him look exceptionally handsome. Piercing blue eyes. So let me show you a couple of examples of that. Now, the neighborhood that I grew up in, in in Brooklyn, uh, most of the people were Italian. So my remembrances of their picture of Jesus is a little fuzzy because I'm getting older, but he kind of reminded me of Al Pacino in the movie Serpico. Maybe not with the dark glasses, but very Italian features, scruffy beard, longish hair, but clearly very Italian. So growing up, I believe that Jesus Christ was the son of Christ, and they lived in Rome, Italy. Now, once I became a believer, and I started traveling the country, it was always interesting to see the various ethnic depictions of Jesus. So this one is often in churches, he kind of looks Swedish to me, don't, doesn't he? Uh, his name could be Sven Christ instead of Jesus Christ. This one, I call this the Beatle Christ. It kind of resembles George Harrison, doesn't he? This was actually from a movie by Franco Zeffirelli called Jesus of Nazareth. And the, the, the uh, actor was British. And so uh, Jesus always has a British accent, although the, the, the latest thing on TV... What's it called? The Chosen? 
he, he has an Israeli accent, which I think is pretty good. But uh, let me go to the next one. Now, you ever have one of those moments you wanted to be somewhere else? Uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, at one of the largest Chinese churches in Canada. And this Chinese man who is an elder in the church is giving me a tour of this huge church. And this picture happened to be in the back of the church. And I said to him, brother, why would you have a picture of Confucius in the church? And he looked at me incredulously and said, he's not Confucius, that's Jesus. And I just wanted to dis crawl somewhere else and hop on a southwest plane and just disappear. But, so I call this the Chinese Jesus. Now, in South Florida, there are a lot of people from the Caribbean. And I spoke at a, a Jamaican church. And this was in the back of the church. And I call this the Rasta Jesus. But uh, I think the point is everybody wants Jesus to look like them, and that's okay. What Isaiah said was it wasn't about his appearance. He had no stately form of majesty that we should be attracted to him. And the Samaritan woman said, how is it that you, Jews, speak to me? So we know that whatever Jesus looked like, they could tell he was Jewish probably by the way he was dressed, I would assume. Uh, so he just looked like an ordinary Jewish man. And this happens to be hanging in a museum. And that's Rembrandt painted that, and he had a Jewish friend of his who he felt would be a good example of perhaps what Jesus may have looked like. All that to say... <laughs> The Old Testament predicted that the reason the Messiah would come to earth would be born of a Jewish virgin in Bethlehem for the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD would be to be a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Listen to the rest of Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being, for our peace fell upon him, and by his scourging, by his stripes we are healed, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. I have to tell you that every time I've read this passage to an unbelieving Jewish person, they all have said the same thing. I know the New Testament speaks about Jesus, but I only want to hear from the Old Testament. And when you tell them this is the prophet Isaiah, is that in the Old Testament? And so, clearly, clearly this is speaking about the crucifixion. And Isaiah writes it as though he were an eyewitness to it. All of the pomp and pageantry 
of Christmas is meaningless if people are unaware that the reason that little baby was born in the manger was to die as a sacrifice for you and me. That's why he came. The reality of the Christmas is, is that the baby came to save Israel and the rest of the world from their sins. Remember what the angel Gabriel said to Joseph? You will name him Jesus. Actually, the angel was saying to him, you will name him Yeshua in Hebrew, meaning salvation, because he will save his people from their sins. If you misunderstand that fact of why the Messiah came, then you miss the reason for Christmas. And as our brother who led a wonderful worship said, Jesus is the reason for the season. Jesus came to be the sacrifice. The promised Messiah of Israel is indeed the Savior of the world, and the reason he was born was to die, to be a sacrifice for every human being, both Jew and Gentile alike. The Bible is clearly God's plan for the restoration of mankind back to where we were originally created. It was the choosing of an elect group of people called the Hebrews through whom all mankind would have the opportunity to be reconciled back to God. That's what Abraham was told in what we commonly call the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And then he said this, and in you, and by extension, all of his descendants, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's when the Messiah came. In the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system that taught Israel the awfulness of sin and how much God hated it. And it's interesting, Israel's role was to teach that to the nations. It's something they never really did well. Only the death of those sacrificial animals and the shedding of blood on the altar would suffice to make people right with God, to pay an atonement. And the reason being is because God accepted it by his grace. Salvation has always been by faith through grace. Never changed. The sacrificial system was only temporary. It was only a picture of what was to take place through Jesus. God loves mankind so much that he came to earth. He came in the most helpless of states as a newborn baby, born miraculously, of a Jewish teenage virgin named Miriam. Same name as Moses' sister. Not born with a silver spoon in his mouth, but rather in the most humble of circumstances, born in a smelly stable, and his birth clearly is the greatest day in Jewish history. So we saw how he would come, where he would come, when he would come, and most importantly, why he would come. And after listening to this, I really have two questions to give you as we prepare to conclude. The first is, who fulfills all these prophecies? Is there anyone who could make that claim? The prophet Jeremiah wrote, if you seek me and search your heart, you will surely find me. If a person is willing to search the scriptures and it sincerely seeks to know the truth, there's only one conclusion to come to. Jesus fulfills all of these prophecies about the Messiah. He is the promised one. Only he can make that claim that he fulfills the prophecies. Now the other question is, so what? What does it mean to you? What are you going to do about it? And clearly, if you've not accepted Jesus' sacrificial death as payment for your sins, 
sitting in a church doesn't save anyone. Recognizing that Jesus' sacrificial death came as payment for your sins, each of us individually. The gospel is intended to be personal. Jesus loves us so much that he didn't just die for mankind. That's a way of diminishing our sin. He died for each one of us individually. He died because of our tempers. He died because of you name it. We all have our stuff. Now, if you've already accepted Jesus, this is, to me, my favorite season. It's a time of great rejoicing. But I have to tell you, I get so tired of the commercialism of Christmas. And one of the things that my family has done, and we have little grandchildren now, is our Christmas gifts are all about family. And they're not real expensive. We save that for birthdays. We want our kids to focus on Jesus. And so, <laughs> I love the Lexus commercials. Don't you love Lexus commercials? Here's your Christmas present, a $75,000 car. Happy Christmas. It's the greatest Jewish history, and it really is the greatest day in the history of the world. I want to close with the words of the angels to the shepherds, and I think it's relevant every time we think about Christmas. Behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ, Messiah, the Lord. Praise the Lord for his indescribable gift. Amen. Merry Jewish Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful. We're grateful for who you are and what you've done. We thank you, Lord, that Messiah came in a very particular way. Born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, born before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, and born to be the savior of the world. Lord, thank you for that incredible truth. And I pray if there's anyone here who has not yet embraced that truth, who has not yet accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that even now you would be speaking to their hearts, reminding them that we are all imperfect beings, we're all sinners, desperately in need of a Savior. And when Jesus died on that cross and rose from the dead, he paid the price for our sins so that we could have eternal life. I pray that each one here will know for certain that they have that eternal life, that they're going to spend eternity with you. Lord, thank you for that incredible salvation you've given us. We give you all honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.